uh, Cecil and Celeste. Cecil was listening to the show last week, and he heard us talking about the N-word. And then he sent me a clip later about when Richard Pryor, when he learned and decided to stop using the N-word. He did it himself. It's on YouTube. Check it out. He has words we can't play this early in the morning. But Richard Pryor did decide during his lifetime to stop using the N-word himself. Thank you, Cecil, for bringing that to your attention and now to ours. Yes. Okay, back next week, uh, wonderful Linda will still be with us through the rest of July. No subjects yet, but you know we're going to do it right. On Thursday, Taboo Talk. All right, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Take what's there. Yes, it is KBOO Portland, your community connection. It's 9 o'clock now, and it's time for Press Watch with your host, Teresa Mitchell. Stay tuned. This is Press Watch. I'm Teresa Mitchell, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. I want to thank some of the people who've been keeping me alive. A little shout-out, if you'll indulge me. I have a severe kidney infection. I've had to have surgery for it, but my friends have been bringing food and supplies to me and my household to keep us out of the general population. In my household, we have a person with lupus, a person with chronic severe asthma, and me with my kidney problems. So if we had become infected with COVID-19, it's questionable whether we would all survive. But Dale, Sonia, D, Al, Tila, Asher, Mona, and several others have consistently come through with help, and that's community in action. I, I feel very grateful and lucky. Community is what will get us through the multiple crises of 2020. Community radio is there for you. And I hope that as our reporters are attacked by the Portland police, that you will step up and thwart the police's efforts by directly supporting KBOO Radio. It's easy. Just pull up KBOO.FM and hit the Donate button on the top right. There's been a new attack in the Trump administration's war against the American people. As CNN says, quote, hospital data on coronavirus patients will now be rerouted to the Trump administration instead of being first sent to U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, end quote. And that's according to the Trump-occupied 
Department of Health and Human Services. CNN says very mildly, I think, quote, the move could make data less transparent to the public at a time when the administration is downplaying the spread of the pandemic and threatens to undermine public confidence that medical data is being presented free of political interference, end quote. So let me translate that from the corporate speak. The move will hide data in order to let the pandemic kill Americans without the defense of reporting and knowledge so that Trump's ego and the Trump corporate profits kleptocracy can rule without question. Michael Caputo, the sexist, racist, Republican PR hack, hired as Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs of the HHS Department, confirmed the change first reported by the New York Times earlier in the day, lying in a statement that, quote, the new faster and complete data system is what our nation needs to defeat the coronavirus and the CDC and operating division of HHS will certainly participate in this streamlined all of government response. They will simply no longer control it, in quotes. Quoting again, the CDC's old hospital data gathering operation once worked well monitoring hospital information across inadequate system today, end quote. That's according to Caputo. In other words, well, in other news, uh, chocolate rations have been doubled to half what they were, and we have always been at war with Eurasia. Let me tell you who this Caputo liar is. Uh, from Wikipedia, Michael Raymond Caputo is a Republican political strategist and media consultant. In April 2020, Caputo was hired as Assistant Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services for Public Affairs, and we can see what that is creating. He worked for the Reagan administration with Oliver North. You remember Oliver North, the traitorous covert operative who led the Iran-Contra cocaine ring and the secret military sabotage against President Carter. And later, Caputo worked as director of media services on the campaign for President George H.W. Bush in the 92 president, uh, presidential elections. Caputo moved to Russia in 1994 after the fall of the Soviet Union and was an advisor to Boris Yeltsin, the U.S. paid anti-democratic drunk known for firing artillery shells into his own parliament. Caputo worked for Gazprom Media in 2000, where he worked on improving the image of, wait for it, Vladimir Putin. He worked on improving the image of Vladimir Putin in the U.S. He moved back to the U.S. and founded a public relations company and then moved to Ukraine to work on a Ukrainian candidate's campaign for parliament. Caputo was investigated. This is where you know his name from. By the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence as part of their investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So this man, Caputo, is now in charge of censoring COVID-19 data. He censors coronavirus data, including the fact that it is primarily killing BIPOC persons in order to keep it out of the hands of the public and under the butt of President Trump. This should outrage you to the point of violence, violence in defense of your life and the life of your loved ones. So should racist police violence and imperialism for that matter. All hospitals and states and sources of information to the CDC properly should revolt against this genocidal attack and should provide information directly to the CDC in defiance of Trump and Caputo, and we'll see what they, they will actually do. I remember the librarians revolted once. Hurrah for librarians, so let's see what medical, medical people will do. Speaking of coronavirus, today the Oregon Health Authority released its weekly report. 
which highlights the data trends for the week from July 6th through July 12th. I'm quoting from it. So the report noted that the recent COVID-19 resurgence accelerated over the reporting week. OHA recorded 2,043 new cases of COVID-19 infection, a 7% increase from the previous week. So they're going up. In addition, 22 Oregonians were reported to have died, twice the number that have died the preceding week. Speak for myself, the, uh, the last couple of days, a couple of few days have been uh, kind of alarming. We see uh, four or seven deaths as opposed to two or three. The uh, percentage of tests as positive increased to 6.2% from 5% through the daily number of newly reported, though the, excuse me, uh, daily number of reported infections appears to have plateaued for the first time since late May. Hospitalizations also plateaued after increasing for five consecutive weeks and remained below earlier peaks in March and April, despite reported daily case counts approximately three times as high. Now, this is where I want to jump in again. Uh, that's going to change. You can't have case counts three times as high, the same disease, and then have the same plateau. Uh, the hospitalizations are going to go up. Deaths are going to go up in Oregon. Not as badly as Texas and Arizona and Florida, California, but uh, they're going to go up. And uh, I think we've lucked out. But returning to that report from the state, these circumstances are probably due principally to detection and reporting of a higher proportion of all infections that occur, more widespread testing, testing of asymptomatic contacts of known cases, and secondly, actual increases in the underlying rates of infection among younger people who are at lower risk of hospitalization than are those in older age groups. ICU bed usage remains well under capacity statewide, and I would add, uh, just from my own perception, uh, also there's a fair piece of luck in this. Note that there's no mention of contact tracing in that piece I was reading from the AHA. The, uh, the state began hiring, uh, they said, up to 180 contact tracers uh, in April, I think it was, and uh, has reported that there are now 600 people available to do it. But there is little mention of their activity in the press for the past two weeks. Last I checked, uh, the reports are that county health departments are short-staffed and that they have no Spanish or Viet speakers. Uh, so... If you have been contacted by a contact tracer following a COVID-19 diagnosis, I'd like to hear about it right now. Uh, please call in. Tell me about it, 503-231-8187. I want to know what they asked you. Here's the latest on masks. I think that our big hope right now is not remdesivir, and it's not a vaccine, and not for the next few months. It's masks. Uh, this is from LA Times by way of Detroit News, and it was written by Rongong Lin Lee and Mara Dolan. Uh, they wrote, there's a common refrain that masks don't protect you, they protect other people from your own germs, which is especially important to keep unknowingly infected people from spreading the coronavirus. But now there's mounting evidence that masks also protect you. If you're unlucky enough to encounter an infectious person, wearing any kind of face covering will reduce the amount of virus that your body will take in. As it turns out, that's pretty important. Breathing in a small amount of virus may lead to no disease or far more mild infection, but inhaling a huge volume of virus particles can result in serious disease or death. And this is where I want to stop and uh, speak for myself. Uh, this is something that I was talking about months ago with uh, Dr. Nyman uh, here on KBOO. Uh, the way that this virus reproduces, uh, once it gets past a certain threshold, it becomes very, very dangerous. And uh, you don't want to be so unlucky almost in any state of health as to uh, 
take in a, a big breath of, of viruses from someone who has a tremendous load in their body uh, that can overwhelm you. That's probably true of just about any uh, infectious virus, but uh, it seems to be particularly true of coronavirus. And uh, returning to, and, and, and the corollary of that is that it seems, and this is, you know, pardon me for being unscientific, but just as uh, a journal analyst, um, it seems that a small amount of virus sometimes allows your body to actually develop some antibodies and, and deal with it. So returning to that text, that's the argument Dr. Monica Gandhi, UC San Francisco professor of medicine and medical director of the HIV clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital is making about why if you are infected with a virus, masking can still protect you from more severe disease. Uh, she is quoted saying, there is a theory that facial masking reduces the amount of virus you get exposed to and disease severity. She is, she was also, excuse me, no, she is also director uh, at the Center for AIDS Research at UC San Francisco. The idea of wearing, of requiring mask wearing in public is becoming an increasingly pressing and politicized issue as the nation sees a surge in new cases as the economy reopens. You're listening to Press Watch on KBOO Portland Press Watch is a weekly counter-propaganda and left opinion. Uh, and, oh, I've got a note from the engineer. Let's see. Uh, dear blank, send COVID statistics directly to the CDC. Oh, I see it's a letter uh, encouraging uh, health officials to, uh, uh, to direct uh, their information to the CDC. They certainly should do that. Um, now I'm hoping for your your calls. Uh, 503-231-8187, your comments and questions. You're listening to Press Watch, counter-propaganda and left opinion here on your people-supported free radio station. I'm Teresa Mitchell, and um, very glad to be kicking. As I was saying, I, I think that uh, people, I've actually uh, felt a sense of doom with my condition and this uh, this very contagious thing coming around and uh, I'm just uh, definitely seeing oak now and I, I think I can attribute that to the help I've gotten from the community. Thank you so much. Um, there are other things happening in the world, of course. And uh, I want to um, give you a couple of those Headlines, news you're not supposed to know. The U.S. Navy again announced the implementation of a freedom of navigation. Despite Venezuela pointing out that on June 23rd, the Navy carried out, uh, the U.S. Navy carried a, a similar exercise near the Venezuelan coast. They already did it. This is from Radio Havana, Cuba. This maneuver is led by the Arleigh Burke class guided missile destroyer USS Pinckney, one of the largest and most powerful ever built in the United States. Speaking for myself, the thing's got like 90 huge missiles in it. Uh, during the previous operation, they write, the U.S. assured that it remained outside 12 nautical miles off the Venezuelan coast. However, the ship sailed through an area that Venezuela claims as its own. And uh, the commander of U.S. Southern Command, Admiral Craig, uh, Craig Fowler, said, yes. Yeah, you can guess what he said. He said, uh, quote, we will exercise our legal right to freely navigate international waters without accepting illegal claims, in quotes. Yeah, that's what they're doing there. Sure. 
Uh, returning to the uh, article, since April, U.S. Uh, naval forces have been off the coast of Venezuela as part of an anti-drug operation, according to them, and Caribbean waters. Uh, why they wouldn't be off Colombia is another question. But uh, returning to Radio Havana, Cuba, last week U.S. President Donald Trump claimed that those operations carried out in collaboration with key regional partners such as Colombia led to 1,000 arrests and the seizure of 121, 120 metric tons of narcotics quote, supposedly intended to finance the Venezuelan president, whom Washington accuses without evidence, of using the benefits of the drug to maintain its power. After those statements, the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, repudiated the, quote, dirty, filthy, and false accusations, in quote, against the South American country and considered that they only seek to win votes for the re-election of Donald Trump. Venezuelan Foreign Minister Jorge Ariaza said on Wednesday from his official Twitter account, that the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, had put out false and manipulated information on the uh, United Nations reports. He is quoted saying, everything they do, everything indicates that they do not warn him either that those same reports demand the immediate lifting of the unilateral and illegal coercive measures of his government against Venezuela. And quotes, uh, Pompeo, meanwhile, also this Wednesday at a press conference from the State Department, had declared that, quote, international pressure on Maduro must continue. So if you turn to uh, Newsweek, which I call Week News, the, uh, they, they put out things like, uh, the country's armed forces, this is a quote, have around 515,000 personnel, talking about Venezuela, saying that uh, Venezuela has roughly frontline 130,000 troops on land. Venezuela has 696 combat tanks along with 700 armored fighting vehicles, in quote. And that article doesn't say anything about the fact that they've been grotesquely impoverished by the United States embargo for a long time now, and there's no way they have that many personnel active. There's absolutely no way they have 696 combat tanks. You know, maybe I'd be surprised if they have 30 actually functioning and 700 armored fighting vehicles, I'm so sure. You're listening to Press Watch on KBOO Portland. And Curtis is on the line. Hello, Curtis. Hi. Yeah, I think we should call COVID-19 the deforestation virus. I'm trying to get that to be, uh, become popular, or deforestation disease. Is, because uh, of Bolsonaro? It is. Say again? Because of, because of Bolsonaro? Well, and because it's basically because they're cutting down the forest, the um, animals are were being exposed to diseases that uh, we wouldn't normally be, be exposed to. All right. Yeah, it's, it's but, zoonotic. That's what they say. All right, go thanks. Great, great show. I'm glad you're well. i got to go. Okay, thanks for calling in. Um, yeah, Bolsonaro's sick with COVID-19. He's going around proving what a manly man he is by not quite dying yet. <laughs> so absurd. And the politicization of masks in this country are reflected in the way that, you know, his attitude and, uh, you know, the Mussolini sort of attitude we get from our, our personal orange Mussolini, Mr. Trump. Uh, also from Radio Havana, Cuba, Saudi-led military aircraft have carried out fresh deadly strikes in Yemen, this time targeting a residential area in the northern province of Al-Jawas as part of the Riyadh regime's ongoing aerial bombardment campaign against its crisis hit southern neighbor. Local sources told Yemen's Arabic-language Al-Masira uh, television network that the fighter jets struck two houses in the Al-Hazm district on Wednesday afternoon, leaving nine civilians, including two women and a boy, dead. 
Seven other people, including five children and two women, sustained injuries earlier in the day. Saudi-led warplanes launched five airstrikes against Al-Aqsa area in the name, uh, excuse me, in the same district of Joff province. There were, however, no immediate reports of possible casualties. Separately, Saudi F-16s pounded an area in the mountainous northwestern province of Saada. The uh, number of casualties is not immediately known. Since March 2015, Saudi Arabia has been conducting a bloody military aggression in Yemen with help from its regional allies like the USA and using arms support. Well, we're not a regional ally. We're just uh, a, a very enthusiastic and fascistic ally using arms supplied by its uh, Western backers. The aim of the war has been to bring Yemen's former president back to power and to defeat the Houthi Ansarullah movement. Yemeni armed forces have been boosting their military capabilities and responding to the attacks, using domestic missiles and drones, and targeting sensitive oil installations and military sites deep inside the Saudi territory. This is where you get uh, uh, Cuban propaganda, by the way. Uh, Yemeni armed forces uh, just don't have diddly in the way of missiles, and uh, whenever they shoot one off, it's big news. Yemen is because they're poor. Yemen is expected to unveil, they write, a new type of domestically manufactured ballistic missile after successful retaliatory operations, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really here to give you uh, Havana's propaganda. The war has uh, also destroyed, damaged, and shut down Yemen's infrastructure, including a large number of hospitals and clinics. The Yemeni population has been subjected to large-scale hunger and diseases, aggravated by the naval blockade imposed on the country by the coalition of aggressors. And that part I certainly agree with. And 100,000 people dead is pretty extreme. As we know here in the U.S., where 130,000 people have died from a completely unnecessary coronavirus led by the orange Mussolini. And uh, the number to call, 503-231-8187, 503-231-8187. And uh, you can call in with your comments or questions. Uh, thanks to Curtis for that comment. And uh, I want to also talk more about the coronavirus. It's, uh, of course, getting worse and going to get much worse. And uh, we here in Oregon are not going to be spared. Obviously, it's a lot worse in other areas of the country. I think that we've lucked out. Uh, from the from New York Times, the U.S. on Wednesday reported 67,300 new infections across the country. It was the nation's second-highest single-day total and 1,000 cases shy of the record set last week. The U.S. outbreak, which has increased in 41 states over the past two weeks, hit 3.5 million total infections on Wednesday. Alabama and Idaho set single-day death records, and officials in Arizona announced 101 deaths, tying that state's daily record. Speaking for myself, I think we're up to six, 700 deaths a day now as this horror continues and accelerates. In a cautionary effort, they write, several large school districts said on Wednesday that they would open the year without online, excuse me, with online classes, bucking pressure from President Trump and his administration to get students back into classrooms quickly as possible. The Houston Independent School District, the seventh largest in the country, said that it would start the year virtually on September 8th. Students would have at least six weeks of online instruction with a tentative plan to start in-person classes on October 19th. In San Francisco, school officials announced that the upcoming school year would start with a distance learning and that the district would gradually phase in a staggered return to the classroom. In a message to parents, 
The superintendents wrote that, quote, we hope to provide a gradual hybrid approach that is a combination of in-person and distance learning for some students when science and data suggest it is safe to do so, end quote. And speaking for myself, uh, officials across the country with school districts are uh, making similar announcements and similar plans. There isn't a national plan because we don't have national leadership. And uh, that goes for contact testing as well. Remember to call with your comments and questions, 503-231-8187. You're listening to Press Watch on KBOO Portland. I'm Teresa Mitchell. Uh, coming up at 9.30, we're going to have Fair Foggering with Fight the Empire. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, again, with the New York Times, the announcements came a week after Mr. Trump threatened to cut federal funding for school systems that defied his demands to reopen classrooms and after he pressured the government's top public health experts to water down recommendations for how schools could reopen safely. I'm interested in your comments and questions about that. The, um, the fraught situation with the economy collapsing, they're saying that something like half the, the jobs aren't going to return, uh, has opened uh, people's minds uh, to the invasion of the, the far right. And uh, I, I guess that's, that's when they jump in, is when people are at their weakest, uh, this poison starts to spread. Uh, there's an article in The Intercept about this, um, and it is by Murtaza Hussein. He writes, at this point, it's become a staple of dark humor to observe that 2020 has been the year in which the four horsemen of the apocalypse seemingly decided to descend on the United States, yet even before our wars, our fears of war, pestilence, and economic collapse and taking, began taking physical form, one could already observe morbid symptoms spreading within the extremities of our body politic. The strongest sign of a looming social illness has been the rebirth and spread of extremist ideologies, beliefs not long ago, dismissed by liberal triumphalists as relics of historical memory, mutated through new information technologies and drawing strength from feelings of economic and demographic dislocation. That's a much better way to put it, I think. Uh, fascist and sectarian ideologies have found a home in the hearts of members of a new generation of Americans. Where the most people have connected the dots or not, a violent struggle is already playing out. And uh, I guess here in Portland, it's a bit more obvious, speaking for myself. But the article says, uh, over the past few years, a steady drumbeat of massacres have been carried out by extremists associated with the new far right. These attacks have targeted synagogues, mosques, and communities where immigrants are concentrated in their wake. The shooters left behind manifestos damning a world that they claim was shrinking in space for people like them. What these ideologues drifting within the currents of the movement have really been waiting for, however, is a real crisis, one that would give them an opportunity to put their ideas of racial warfare and ethnic purification into full effect. That crisis is here. Again, this is an article from The uh, Intercept, and it is by Murtaza Hussein. And you can get it at the intercept, excuse me, theintercept.com. It's 25 after the hour. You're listening to Press Watch on KBOO Portland, your community radio station. Have you donated to KBOO? Did you know that the cops are directly, directly attacking us now? Attacking our reporters. And uh, I am calling for a backlash in terms of donation to KBOO. Well, the writer says engaging in political predictions is a foolish, high-risk, low-reward activity. And, you know, after he writes that sentence, he's going to engage in political predictions, right? <laughs> That's what you do. 
that's the game I like to play. But anyway, uh, he writes, but having followed the iterations of this new extremist ideology at home and abroad and grappled with the fact that there is a pool of young men who have proven themselves willing to die for it, it strikes me as irresponsible not to advise people to brace for what is on the horizon. Although some have yet to accept that the U.S. is in the midst of an unstoppable cultural and demographic transition into multiculturalism, the natural challenges entailed in such a shift should not be ignored. It is incumbent upon everyone to do their part to make it a success, while ensuring that everyone feels they have a place in this country. This demographic shift, though, has given rise to serious anxieties among some within the majority community. He's talking about whites. Anxiety that helped enable the rise of a white nationalist named Donald Trump to the presidency. These majoritarian sentiments are likely to escalate as minority groups grow to embrace their own forms of racial consciousness, often based on redressing past injustices suffered at the hands of the majority. The current wave of national protests was triggered by a killing with strong sectarian overtones, another black man killed by a white police officer. From a historical perspective, countries that have experienced wholesale economic collapse at the same time as exploding ethnic tensions had often had a difficult time dealing with that, to put it mildly. The U.S. still has a lot of resources at its disposal to handle these challenges, but the gravity of the present situation should not be understated. And I really have to agree. Excuse me. I really have to agree with that assessment. And a corollary to that is that white people like me need to understand uh, the details of why whiteness is false. And we need to, as, as, uh, as the writer, Mr. Hussein says here, uh, we need to frame our new struggle as part of this new non-white dominated society. Part of that is understanding that uh, whiteness is false in part because it is simply a status conferred on persons with light skin and uh, particularly with persons with light skin who have the, uh, let's say, ethno-cultural linguistic uh, ease of participating with the the white former majority group, and in disassembling that one one aspect of it, which has a, a disproportionate psychological aspect on on me and you, is looking at where you really come from. I'm not talking about taking one of those DNA tests necessarily, but I am saying that. Uh, See, this is some whiteness. You need to understand that, well, in my case, for example, um, a good part of my um, ethno-linguistic cultural heritage uh, comes from Irish immigrants. Uh, part of it comes from German immigrants to the United States. Uh, the, that is the uh, overwhelming majority of my heritage. And, uh, but... Uh, this whiteness obscures the fact that there are different uh, genetic and uh, ethno-linguistic uh, groups that help define what you are. And so what I am is quite different from someone who is, uh, for example, and pardon me for using the same example often, uh, different from the Helena group uh, identified within uh, Polish citizens, for example. Just a, a completely different, completely different, but uh, obviously and... Uh, structurally different body and I've run out of time so I hope that you will stay tuned for Fight the Empire and you've been listening to Press Watch on KBOO Portland I'm Teresa Mitchell broadcasting to you at 90.7 FM 
to Cascadia and other frequencies in Cascadia and using KBOO.FM to go out to all the ships at sea.